Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, one of our members last Sunday, Ed Sohn, was gracious enough to, to preach for us. I was out of town at my sibling's wedding, and Ed stepped in, and he picked up with the, the next theme of what was the lectionary text last week in the epistle, which was Ephesians, and Ed preached a powerful and challenging message, kind of a call to action for us as the church in such a time as this, as the world continues to spin and our news feeds continue to overwhelm us. Ed preached a message about our call to stay engaged and to be proactive and to fight and to work together for the kingdom of God in this world. So if you missed that, I invite you to go back and to experience it. But this morning, we shift from the book of Ephesians, which finished up last week in the lectionary, to the epistle of James, or the letter from James. And because this is the first Sunday where James is addressed, it begins in chapter 1. And if you've never read through James, I would invite you this week to take a minute. It's not a long book. Uh, but it is a powerful book, and it's filled with a lot of prophetic and intense imagery from this, this writer named James and to an ancient or to multiple ancient Christian communities, depending on if this letter was a circulatory letter or if it was just meant for one community. And, and in it, James does. He, he doesn't pull punches. He speaks these words of intense truth these calls to action, these calls for the people of God to be the people of God, not simply in word, but in deed. And this morning is no, no stranger to that notion and to that call. And the lecture has us pick up in verse 17 of chapter 1. So friends, as I read, I invite you to embody a posture that allows you to experience and receive the sacred words of ancient, sacred words of ancient scripture. James writes that every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation due to change. In fulfillment of God's own purpose, God gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of God's creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word but not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror 
They look at themselves and on going away, they immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, of freedom, and persevere, being not simply hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious, but don't bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, our parent, is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God, thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy and gracious God, in these moments, I ask that your spirit would meet and dwell with us. Whether people are experiencing this message together on on Sunday morning or or sometime later throughout the week, we ask, God, that you would make these, these words that I have put together, may they become your word for your people in whatever time they're received and experienced by your people. And God, as they're received, God, as I preach them, I ask that all of it would be offered as acts that bring you joy, that spread your good news to a human race who needs your good news now as much as, if not more than ever. So meet us, God, in this time. Speak to us and move in us so that we might be the people you're calling us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this, this reading this morning, it, it brought into my mind this deep sort of, sort of fascination and curiosity about the ancient people with and to whom James would have been writing. James wrote sometime after Jesus in the early early generations of the Christian movement. We're not exactly 100% sure of, of the date or the, the decade in that century, but regardless, it was a time very different than ours. And the interesting thing about the text this morning is that it, it employs language of technology, but not something that we often think of as technology, but, but technology nonetheless, the mirror. And I'm going to say more about that in a bit. But before I do that, this, this conversation about technology and mirrors, it, it made me think about literacy, a society's capacity to have a population who can read and who has access to the proper technology to write, whether that be in the olden days, quills, or today, pens, pencils, tablets, paper, etc. But it's rather a modern phenomenon for most, most people in a given society to have not only the capacity to read, but the, the availability of, of writing utensils and paper and tablets and the ability to put down in some sort of form words that can then tomorrow be picked back up and read. The world hasn't always been this way. Literacy has not always been so endemic. 
There was a time when knowing how to read was something that was a privilege of, of those who had the, the capacity to educate their children, who had the finances, the, the wealth, the, the ability, who had schools in their, in their community that could teach them the, the vernacular, the language of their people. And then, of course, even if they knew how to read, to then have the money to gain access to the capacity to write was a whole other thing. Now, now, juxtapose that ancient world with where we're at today. In today's world, it's almost, it's almost considered like an additional step, like an uncomfortable step to have to go find a pencil or a pen. We're annoyed when we look around the table or the workspace or the car or the bank deposit, whatever, and we can't find a pen or a pencil, or, or we find the, the chain to the pen that used to be there, still there, but the pen's gone. Have any of you had this happen? It's super annoying. But it's only annoying because we're so used to being able to write stuff down whenever we want to, right? Even if we don't have, like, legitimate, white, clean, ruled paper or whatever, we grab the back of a receipt and we scribble something on it or we write on our hand if we really, really need to put something down and we can't find a surface. But beyond physically writing, let's not forget that, that, that wildly huge breakthrough that some of you watching this morning probably have never heard of, the Blackberry, and I'm not talking about the produce section at your local grocery store or the local farmer's market. I'm talking about Blackberries, which were the kind of in-between cellular device between the early, early flip phones and then what we have now, which are totally space-age in comparison. But Blackberries, they had a full thumb keyboard, so you could, you could use your thumbs or your fingers to, to write out things on the screen and save them. Before that, you had to numerically you know, hit the one however many times to A, B, C, and then you had to hit the, the next numeric number to scroll through the letters that were associated with that number, and it took forever to write out anything on a flip phone. But then Blackberries came along. And now, of course, touchscreens, they have completely changed not only the way that we are able to capture information and to write things, but they've completely transformed our relationship with technology and our own brains. And for those of you that were born into a world with tablets that you could write on, like it's hard probably for you to even think about or imagine a world where these did not exist. And don't even get me started on verbal dictation and my own challenges with my own children at times to say, no, 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 you have to learn to type. You can't just keep hitting the microphone button and telling the word processor what to write. All of this led me to imagine our society, this world in which we all find ourselves. What if tomorrow, what if tomorrow we all woke up and all the pens were gone and all the paper was gone? What if tomorrow we woke up and all of the tablets and the technology were gone? What if tomorrow we woke up and there was no way to write anything down all of a sudden? Just gone. What if we, tomorrow, were much more like the, the ancient society to which James is writing, a people for whom writing, reading, all of this, 
that these were luxuries that not all people had access to. Imagine waking up and having no video recording technology, no photographs, no ability to take pictures, no way to capture an image and then go back and reference it later, which is really what writing in letters is. It's capturing a different type of image in a different way. But how would our society function? How would our economy function? How would you function? Or how would I function? And the more I thought about this, the more I thought about the fact that so many of us, myself included, have become so reliant on writing down that which we intend to address or to do, whether we're talking about a list for the grocery or we're talking about our, our, our scrolling or our rolling list of to-dos in our work lives or personal lives. For many of us, it has become like a principle if, if it's to be done, to be accomplished, it must be written down, right? But, but certainly, people in James' society got stuff done. Certainly, they did things. They accomplished things. How? Without the capacity to, to write lists and to remind ourselves and to use apps that tell us what we're supposed to be doing in a given moment of time. In our text this morning, James is speaking to sort of the, the fleeting nature of the human mind and the human heart, our capacity to be fully engaged with something one moment, and then the next moment to turn our heads and our attention to something else and completely forget that which we were just hearing or receiving or thinking about. James is speaking to the human tendency and capacity to, to look at something and then to turn away and forget that which we just saw. He writes in verses 22 through 24, Be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word, but not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves, and on going away, they immediately forget what they were like. so interesting that, that James speaks to this problem with mirrors even in the ancient world, right? I mean, in our, in our world today, we have mirrors everywhere. They're in most bathrooms in our country and in our homes, and it's not hard to find a, a reflective surface. But in the ancient world, mirrors were a much more rare technology than they are today. And in that world, it would have been a piece of, of really well-polished copper or brass, something like that. And obviously, metals were sought after and expensive, so it wasn't something that every, every family and every village had in their homes, which means that you could probably go substantial amounts of time, days, weeks, I don't know, without ever looking at yourself without ever looking into a mirror. I mean, I guess you could maybe find a pool of water that was reflective if there wasn't wind blowing it at the time, but regardless, it wouldn't be like it is in today's society, and it certainly wouldn't be like it is with Zoom. They say that we've, we've had to look at ourselves in the past year and a half because of Zoom meetings 
more than any human in history has ever had to look at themselves. That's just a weird thought, right? To imagine that we on this planet have been necessarily in a place where we've had to see our faces looking back at us because of the way Zoom technology works, and we've had to look at images of ourselves more than any humans in history. Kind of wild. But James' community, his world, would have been the exact opposite of this, right? It would have been like a luxury to get to look at yourself, to get to have access to a mirror. And I think that makes his example of the mirror that much more fascinating, to take it out of our culture and our world but, and put it in this strange, ancient scenario where not everybody had access to mirrors every day all the time like we do now. Why does James use a mirror? And why does he use this example in a culture where the written word was not nearly, not even close to common like it is now? where not everyone could read, where not everyone could write. I think that James's point is that for most people, when they did look at a mirror, it was an opportunity. And because it was an opportunity, most people would probably take it rather seriously. They would look at themselves and maybe catch up on like their teeth or see if they need a haircut or, you know, what's that... What's that itchy spot on their ear? I don't know. Like, whatever people do when they look in the mirror. And, and they might do that and prepare mentally for that time that they have with, with this reflection of their own face that they don't normally have access to. But James's point is that even in that culture where a, a mirror would probably have been a luxury and not something people constantly looked at, that... In his comparison with, with people who were peering into the gospel of Christ, peering into what he calls the perfect law of liberty or of freedom, he says some look, peer into it, and then somehow turn their heads and, and walk away and behave and live as though they never saw it in the first place. It's like they look and they see and they turn and they immediately go right back to how everything was prior. Even though now they see that they need a haircut or they need to deal with their teeth or they have a skin problem, whatever, they go back to acting as though it's not the case for them, as though there's nothing to address. And James seems to be quite troubled by this observation he has of human beings, specifically those he's writing to in Christian communities. It's a fascinating thought to think that in James's world, because people had such rare access to their own reflections, to mirrors, to seeing themselves, no photography, no videography, that, that maybe sometimes people could be a little bit foggy on what they actually looked like. Isn't that weird to think about? People might, like, have incorrect or sort of morphed or sort of exaggerated views of what their, their face, their features, 
their physicality looks like because they don't see it very often. And part of what's important for them to have access occasionally to a mirror is to sort of right-size and have a correct image or view of, of what they actually look like and, and, and where they're at and who they actually are. And you'd think that they would remember it because they don't have as much access to it, but James says, in the ancient world, people are just as forgetful, apparently, and distractible and as they are in the world today. And most of us don't need that to be illustrated, right? I don't need to illustrate distraction. I don't need to illustrate how easy it is for us to forget and how hard it is for us to remember I mean, there's times regularly when I'm driving, and for some reason when I'm driving, when I'm supposed to keep my hands on the wheel, oftentimes that's when the stuff occurs to me that when I'm sitting at my desk with my computer in front of me and my pad with my to-do list, for some reason, like, I cannot cultivate, I cannot excavate that thing that I need to write down because it needs done, but when I'm driving on the interstate, there, there it comes, it pops into my mind. And I don't want to use verbal dictation right now because I'm using ways to get where I need to go. So I think to myself, I will remember this. As soon as I get there, I'm going to find a pen or find my phone. I'll text it to myself. I'll write it down. I'll put it in my reminders. I'll do something. And of course, and I'm, I'm probably the only person who ever experiences this, but I, I, I finally get to my destination and... What do I do? I grab my phone, and I get out, and I lock the car, and I get into where I'm going. I completely forget the fact that I had this epiphany driving to the place of this thing that was really important that I had been trying to remember to take care of, and then I arrive, and it's gone. It's so frustrating. And, you know, even if I you do get someplace and you want to write it down, then you can't find your pencil or your phone battery's dead. You know, we've all been there. And, and the problem is, is that our intent in the moment that we're going to remember to go and to write them down, right? That intention doesn't mean, doesn't make the dry cleaning get picked up. It doesn't, make sure the kid gets picked up from school or dropped off at sports practice. It doesn't mean that that grocery item that you stop and get it. Saying that I'm going to remember to do the thing, I'm going to remember to write the thing down so that I remember to do the thing, doesn't actually make the behavioral observable change out in the world. Which is frustrating, but it is... It is being human, it is the lives we, maybe just I, but I think probably many of us experience. Which gets to James' main point. Which is, we don't get credit for just thinking of it. We don't get credit for just hearing it. We don't get credit for promising ourselves that we're going to write it down and then forgetting to do that, or if we do write it down, forgetting to read our to-do list the next day. Who's done that? You've written it down, and then you don't read the list. And James says, it didn't happen. Because simply writing it 
or hoping to write it doesn't mean that it happens. And he says, so many of us, we listen to the word, we hear the word, we hear the message, and we, we feel this movement, this decision, this, this anticipation for something new or different or a change, but then we, we walk out the door, we turn off the screen, we end the call, and so fast, right? We're on to the next thing, and, and it just never re-enters our minds. It's, it's not the that we're trying to forget it. It's just that our brains are so active and there's so much distraction that we shift and that intention gets buried. It gets buried in the moments where the listening and the hearing was happening and then it never gets revisited except for maybe when you're driving on the interstate. And I think James point is that you could even take it further and say, you know, somebody could go to trade school or they could go to college to learn to be a, an accountant or they go to law school to become a lawyer, they could become a certified auto mechanic, they could become a plumber or an electrician, all of these, and they could graduate with, with degrees in their programs. But, but none of that means that they will ever spend a single day as an electrician or a plumber or an accountant or a lawyer because they could just get the degree and stop. They could learn the skills, but never embody them. They could learn the information, receive the data, but never actually engage in the work, embody the practice. That's hard, because some of us are addicted to, to TED Talks or to self-improvement to consuming how to better ourselves. But then when it actually comes down to what James says, like taking a step, doing a thing, changing a behavior, moving in a direction, that's when we just, so much of the time, pick up the next book, start reading, turn on the next podcast and start listening. We think by osmosis, by simply hearing, somehow that's going to, change us, but what James says is only to a point. Yeah, you may learn something, you may receive new data, but there comes a time and a place for that, that data, that learning, that knowledge, that skill, that it must be embodied in our real world lives. It must change our behavior out in the world in an observable way. And James' point is that the Christian faith is so much more than simply like an idea, an idea that humans verbally spread from one human to the next, like, you know, like sort of like the, the idea of philo philosophy or something. It's, it's more than that. It's an embodied way of being in, in, in the world. Yeah, it involves speaking, it involves listening, it involves communicating, all of that. But, but it, it doesn't, it can't stop there. That's just one early step towards the end goal and the, the point that, that James is pointing those who are reading his letter toward, which he's not unique in this. Paul does the same, Jesus does the same, John does the same. And the point is that ultimately the, the end goal is, is for both individual and collective human transformation that takes the form and the shape of humans who 
are acting and being different out in the way they live their lives in the world. There should be verifiable, observable behavioral change of the human beings who claim allegiance to the Christ. And if there's not, then there's a huge disconnect. It's like looking in a mirror, seeing yourself, and then walking away and forgetting what you just saw. James seems to believe that humans have the capacity to profess to believe something, and maybe they do believe it in some way, but, but, but that belief has not taken deep enough root in their hearts and in their whole being that it actually begins to translate out into their actions. Which means, I suppose, that you could sort of verbally assent to a system or dogma or doctrine of, of a religious tradition and, and, on the other hand, experience absolutely no life transformation. You could intellectually assent to something, but behaviorally be no different. And, and James' point here is not that faith is worthless. His point here is not that works should exist independently of one's faith. His point is that they're two sides of the same coin, that they have to be integrated, that they're, they're part of one another, that, that our, our beliefs and our, our ideas and our knowledge does and can impact what we do, and what we do should impact what we know. They're related in a very intimate way. But, but you can go to law school, you can maybe even pass the bar, but if you never practice law, you're not a lawyer. Not really. And the thing about a caterpillar is, you know, they're going to genetically, they're going to genetically do what they do by, by nature of their genetic code and what they're predisposed to do naturally. They're going to build a cocoon and they're, they're they're ultimately going to break out of that cocoon as a beautiful butterfly with wings that can fly. But I don't think that either the, the caterpillar on the one hand or the butterfly on the other like cognitively understand what's happening in that process of transformation. But nonetheless, transformation is occurring dramatically and behavior changes dramatically from what a caterpillar does in the way they travel to the way a butterfly lives and exists in the world. And they don't even understand what's happening. I can understand what the process of transformation even looks like in another without experiencing it myself, which is troubling. It's true, but it's troubling. And it's convicting. See, friends, the deep-seated conviction of James and really of the entirety of the New Testament witness, starting back with Jesus, is that the human collective and the human individual both are being called into this radical process of spiritual evolution. We're being called by God and by God's kingdom to, to sort of begin to step out of the shell of the, the first humanity, the old humanity, the way of survival that our, that our bodies evolved to, to keep us all alive, and Jesus is calling us into this new way. He's saying, keep, keep evolving humanity. Keep walking. Keep going. 
spiritual transformation, spiritual metamorphosis. Don't just live in the old instincts of the lizard brain of survival, of fear, of anxiety, of trying to duck the next boulder that's falling or whatever, but, but, but move beyond that to this, this legitimate, true, empathetic compassion and care for the other human beings in your vicinity, for human beings that aren't even on this planet yet as we care about the, the damage that's being done to our environment. Jesus calls us into this compassion, this empathy, this mercy that, that is this new stage of, of human connectivity and caring. And yes, all of this is hard as hell. It's not, it's not easy. James knows this. I know this. You, you know, anybody who's tried to change and to step forward and to do the next right thing, to be the, the new creature that, that in the verses prior to the mirror language, James says is a seed implanted in us that's growing this thing in us. But it's awkward because we've never done it before. We've never been it before. We've never been the new creatures that God's bringing us into and helping us to become. So we've got to figure it out, which means we have to learn. And learning is hard, and learning is awkward and uncomfortable, and a lot of times we fall down and skin our knees, and we get mad, and we pound in the ground, and we get mad at ourselves, and we get mad at the teacher, but at the end of the day, we've got to learn, and it's got to be more than just cognitive, it's got to be embodied. I can, I can think that I know how to ride a bike, but until I put my body on a bicycle and actually learn how to do it. Same thing with swimming and a million other realities out in the world. Christ calls us to transcend our, our natural evolutionary propensity to self-preserve and, and to begin to ask the question, what does it look like for you to be concerned about the self-preservation of the other humans in your vicinity, not just yourself? And I think what happens often when we have this conversation, and here's where I want to end because I love the fact that James brings the mirror in because I think that we look in the mirror and oftentimes the reaction that we can have is, whoa, I am a mess. I need to do that and that and that over there and this and this and that and this and that. And we begin to make the list, right? We might even write it down of all the things about us and, and we're, what, that we need to change or we want to change. And then what do we do? The, wisp, the list gets so big and so heavy and so weighty that, that we, it drops by gravitational pull to the ground and the next day, the next week, it's too heavy to pick back up. There's too much. So we just dismiss the whole thing. We look at ourselves in the mirror, we see, and then we go right back the way things were before. But I think James would agree that you're much better off, we are much better off to just, just look at the mirror today and to say, what's like one thing in my life? What is one part in me? What is one behavioral reality you know, James mentions a few. He mentions anger. He says, you know, anger, generally speaking, gets us in trouble, and it's not making us more righteous. It's not putting us in sync with God. I don't think that that's always true. I do think there's such thing as righteous anger, but a lot of our anger is 
more about us than it is about God's justice in the world. He talks about the tongue and the way we use words and the way we speak about other humans. And then he gives his definition, doesn't he, of, of what he calls true religion. And he says that true religion is really simple. It's taking care of the most vulnerable in your society, widows and orphans, refugees. It's caring about those people who need another human being on an actual planet to give a damn about them and to then take that care and do something with it, which ties us back into to Ed's message from last Sunday. True religion, it's not, it's not just relegated to, to behavior only with no, no beliefs, no faith. That's not James's point at all. His point is that it's this beautiful coming together of what we believe and what we do and this integration of the whole and that they speak back and forth and they teach us. We're kind of in the middle. Our behavior's out there, our beliefs are in here, and we're working to become and to, to step out of the shell of the old. And it's hard and it's awkward, but if we just take one thing, Start with one thing to change, one thing to move forward, one thing to add or to practice differently or to be different. Then maybe slowly but surely, friends, we might actually evolve and at some point look back and realize that transformation is happening in us and through us and collectively with the people of Eastside Church. So, friends, may it be so in the name of God, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer. Amen and amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.